Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. This is Sirius XM Progress. Anybody hear Flava Flav sing the national anthem this weekend at the NBA game? Jesus, that was interesting. I'm John Fugelsang. This is Sirius XM Progress. Welcome to Progress After Dark. This is Tell Me Everything. A little show that brings good trouble to the right-wing bubble. I hope you had a great weekend. It's been a crazy day already, and we're so glad you're with us. For the next three hours, we're going to be bringing you some quality guests and taking apart everything you need to know to make sense of this day as senseless as it all might seem. Tonight, Professor Corey Brechtschneider is going to be here with us. Uh, comedian Rhonda Hansom will be here. Uh, author and Professor Angela Sutton will be here to discuss her amazing book about how piracy... Yes, the golden age of pirates off the African coast actually led to the chattel slave trade as we knew it in America. Fascinating book. I'm dumb. It's an amazing history book about a battle that no one's ever heard about. The book is called Pirates of the Slave Trade, the Battle of Cape Lopez and the Birth of an American Institution. It's a remarkable history of how the ending of the golden age of piracy ushered in a new era of slavery that changed the course of of history. And of course, all night long, our most important guest is you guys. We are at 866-997-4748. Thank you to everybody who uh, said nice things about the uh, Big Sexy Liberal show last weekend in L.A. You can still see that on uh, SexyLiberal.com. The pay-per-view is still up and running. Thanks, everybody who liked our video. Home over Caligula, the epic Dr. Seuss book explaining all of Donald Trump's criminal trials. You can See that over there on uh, on Netflix, Netflix, YouTube, whatever it's called. This coming Friday, November 3rd, I'll be playing at the Lionsgate Comedy in uh, Berkshires in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. I'm doing two shows, one at seven, one at nine with our friend Kevin Bartini. Uh, The seven o'clock show is already sold out, but there are still some tickets left for the nine o'clock. You can go to my Twitter or Kevin Bartini's Twitter and Find the damn uh, barcode and and get yourself some tickets. It's going to be a real riot. A lot of big shows coming up we'll be talking about. Lots of live dates. Next year's an election year. So if you like the show, uh, I encourage you to to come to one of the live ones because I'll be all over the road all next year. Tonight, I'm very happy to be with the most dangerous production team in radio. The great Chris Hauselt runs our show from South Carolina. The mighty Thea Harper produces our show out of Brooklyn. It's been a crazy one. House Republican leadership unveiled a bill offering $14 billion in aid only to Israel. Not a multinational aid package the White House had demanded. Not any aid for Ukraine. Because that's what Putin wants. So that's what Trump wants. So that's what Trump's little Johnson produces. 
The White House smacked him down pretty good, too. Uh, President Biden also used the Defense Production Act to write an executive order that will curb and guide the development and use of AI. That's very interesting. United Auto Workers reached a tentative deal with General Motors two days after reaching a tentative agreement with the automaker Stellantis. It's very good news for organized labor. That might wind up being the story of the year. Also, um, a shocking viral video shows an anti-Semitic mob storming an airport in Dagestan, Russia yesterday. Seeking out an arriving flight from Tel Aviv. It, folks, is it is it that hard to, to oppose war and oppose violence and oppose terrorism and oppose injustice without hating Muslims, without hating Jews? Is it that hard? Please. Mexico has updated the death toll from Hurricane Otis to 45 now, although many people are still missing in a really ruined Acapulco that is starved for resources. Acapulco was not designed to withstand a Category 5 hurricane. And the family of Dexter Wade, that's the amazing story Thea shared from Mississippi last week. Well, Ben Crump is now their attorney, and they are asking the Justice Department to investigate the circumstances that led to his death at the hands of one cop and the seven-month cover-up and secret burial of his body by the rest of the force. And finally, a judge in Texas has ruled uh, in favor of Texas, ordering the federal government has to stop cutting through razor wire that has been laid through the Rio Grande River to deter immigration. Because when Jesus commanded his followers to welcome the stranger, Texas heard, put razor wire inside the Rio Grande River to cut these children to ribbons because we're good Christians. Today is the birthday of Grace Slick, uh, Ruth Gordon, uh, Kevin Pollack, a friend of the show, Timothy B. Schmidt, friend of the show, Henry Winkler, a friend of the show, and Otis Williams of the Temptations is 82 years old today. He's also a friend of this show. Let's get to it. Today is also the birthday of John Adams. And in 1801, he left the White House in, in shame. He left Washington, D.C. in shame. The HBO miniseries with Paul Giamatti captured the humiliation of the moment really well. And, and, and you know why he was humiliated? You know why he left D.C.? 222 years ago this year, because he had lost his election. That was when what we call the peaceful transfer of power began in this country. And it lasted for 220 years until a con man, a swindler of veterans, a racist, a rapist, a shitty landlord, an insurrectionist, and a reality show teabag named Donald Trump ended the tradition of the peaceful transfer of power. Now, this week, there's a new trial for Trump, and it's not one of the trials we've talked about, not the federal trial, the conspiracy to deny rights, or the federal trial for the illegal theft of classified documents. It's not the E. Jean Carroll sexual abuse and defamation trial. It's not the New York City trial for campaign finance fraud. It's not the Georgia trial for conspiracy to interfere in the election. It's not even that pyramid scheme trial. That starts in January. No. Today, a civil case began seeking to keep Donald Trump off the ballot next year in Colorado by arguing his role in the insurrection is disqualifying under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Minnesota case follows later this week. There's actually dozens of cases pending across our country that are relying on this post-Civil War era clause in the 14th Amendment that bars anyone who engaged in insurrection after taking an oath to uphold the Constitution from ever holding higher office again. And it's probably... All of these cases probably will be bound for the Supreme Court. Now, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, if you don't know, says that no one can hold federal office who, quote, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. 
And today, lawyers for the Watchdog Group, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, that's crew, and uh, some lawyers for Donald Trump's campaign came face to face in a Denver courtroom in this first of the lawsuits. Now, the plaintiffs crew are arguing it's really simple. Donald Trump tried to overturn his election loss. He tried to have a scheme to steal the election from the American voters, and it led to the January 6th attack on the Capitol. So he's disqualified from the presidency, right? Just like if he were not a natural-born citizen. Eric Olson, who's the lawyer representing a group of Colorado voters trying to keep Trump off the ballot, he said in court today that Trump had summoned and organized the mob that attacked the Capitol. Here's a quick clip of this. This is A7 in Colorado today. This legal battle underway to keep Trump off the ballot. Here is an attorney for Crew explaining the basis for bringing this case. Now, this case has four basic components. Trump took an oath as an officer of the United States. January 6th was an insurrection against the Constitution. Trump engaged in that insurrection, and the Secretary of State enforces constitutional qualifications, and this court can order her to keep ineligible candidates off the ballot. It's very controversial. And I'm afraid my opinion, well, I might be winning the unpopular opinions game for a while on this one, but the clause that we're talking about has only been used a couple of times since right after the Civil War. And Donald Trump's lawyers are saying that it was never, ever meant to apply to the office of president because the clause doesn't mention the president. Unlike senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president, here are some attorneys for the Trump side of things telling the court there's a lot of precedent that prevents candidates from being kept off a ballot. Horace Greeley, who ran in 1872 as a Democratic presidential candidate. He had paid for Jefferson, um, Jefferson Thomas's bail. He was roundly accused, loudly accused, of giving aid and comfort to the enemies of the United States shortly after the Civil War when he ran. Lots of debate on that issue. No one ever once thought of trying to disqualify him from voting. They took their arguments to the people for them to make that decision. Eugene Debs, Socialist Party USA candidate in, in four elections, in 1920, ran from jail. He had been convicted of sedition for giving aid and comfort to enemies during the First World War by trying to stop military recruitment. He was convicted of that. He ran from jail. He was never disqualified. No, no attempt was made to disqualify him under the under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. The case of Eugene Debs is often regarded as a low point in American history, a low point when it comes to First Amendment protections, and for good reason. People should be able to run for office and shouldn't be punished for their speech. Okay, now, friends, I don't pretend to have all the answers, and I don't think you should trust anyone who does. But this case I'm very divided by. I'm actually leaning towards not trying to remove Trump from any ballot, but not because of his lawyer's specious arguments. Yeah, the 14th Amendment clearly outlines. They got him dead to rights. He can't run for any office. It doesn't mention the president, sure, but it says no one can hold federal office who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States, so that that's president. Come on. They got him dead to rights. I still think it's a bad idea. And that opinion is fraught with danger. I mean, most of us don't think Donald Trump can win in 2024, but we've been here before, haven't we? It seems inconceivable he'd have more support now than he did in 2020. He certainly hasn't become more popular since then. 
It also seems inconceivable that Joe Biden will get the turnout he got in 2022, though. And, and the worst leaders in the world want Trump back. North Korea wants him back. Putin, Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is cutting oil production. So the gas prices are going to go up next year. There's still a way that Trump could win this and get back in the White House. But I'm not convinced keeping him from competing in certain states is the right thing to do or the smart thing. Now, I'm very open to being persuaded on this, so please talk me out of this, but hear me out. This was a post-Civil War rule, and the U.S. did not establish any kind of consistent procedure or institutional authority for excluding candidates from office after the Civil War. It's really spotty how it's been implemented, and, and what would look to some like, hey, we're standing up for the Constitution. It would look to many others like an unprecedented intervention by government elites into our elections, based on a disputed interpretation of a rarely used 150-year-old provision of the Constitution with the clear goal of keeping millions of American voters from being able to vote for the corrupt, lying, racist douchebag they want to vote for. And we already know our charming MAGA friends aren't within hailing distance of what we call reason, okay? Trump supporters already caused chaos and violence and death at the Capitol when they wrongly believe the election was being stolen. And of course, they don't really believe in democracy. They don't really believe in American institutions. What if Trump really was prevented from even running for reasons that are quite debatable? Look, if the Republican Party had done their job and convicted Trump during his second impeachment trial, then he'd be blocked from running again. None of this would be happening, but they didn't. And that's why our democracy is still in peril. And make no mistake, our democracy is in danger. The Republican Party pretends they hate government. They love government. Government's how they get power. Government's how they reward their donors. What they hate is democracy. And guys, if, if we are the ones who are fighting to save democracy, do we save democracy by denying it to Americans we disagree with? I can hear some of you getting angry already, but a big issue is whether Trump has to be convicted or at least charged with an insurrection to be disqualified under Section 3. And the courts may well decide, well, he hasn't been convicted of anything yet. So the question of whether an individual can serve should be decided by citizens in an election. And again, I know he's disqualified. Technically, I get it. He plotted the fake elector scheme. He caused this insurrection to seize power. He led a criminal conspiracy to overturn Georgia's election. He's guilty as hell. And if that's not the behavior for which the 14th Amendment was written, then, then, then what is? I mean, his lawyers say, well, the people should decide if he should be on the ballot rather than having him removed from the ballot with the 14th Amendment. Well, the people did decide. We voted him out of office and he still launched a coup. But partisan secretaries of state taking Donald Trump off the ballot on their own feels like a real Pandora's box. This is like foreplay with Satan. Pick the metaphor that works for you. I mean... It's very dangerous, and it could easily, easily lead to all kinds of violence. Now, to sane people, it's standing up for the Constitution. To deluded people and twisted people who believe Donald Trump is a good person, it looks like election interference by the elites. The state is preventing voters from being able to make the shitty choice they want to make. This could even ensure a, a, a Republican gets it, because Donald Trump would be seen as a martyr. Donald Trump could even win through write-in votes. And I agree, he violated the 14th Amendment. I'm not disputing that. But the thought of keeping him off the ballot makes me very queasy because this will permanently cement his martyr status among the MAGA mouth breathers. And making a martyr out of this guy will help him get support from moderates. Pro-Trump secretaries of state, pro-Trump secretaries of state throughout the country who, like Trump, will respond 
by disqualifying Democratic candidates off of ballots. They will do it, guys. You will see Democrats thrown off the ballot for bullshit reasons, and they will use this as their justification. And even if the courts rule that Trump is disqualified from the ballot, it's going to go to the Supreme Court. How do you think they're going to rule on this? How do you think those six godless shills on the court are going to feel about this? We can put an end to all of this. You know how? Leave him on the ballot and beat the crap out of him by overwhelmingly turning out to vote in 2024. Show history, show MAGA, show the world, show Trump what a loser he truly is. Guys, if we try and do this, if we try and save democracy by taking it away from the people we don't like, it's not going to work. And it's going to backfire in many ways, some of them violent. Trumpism has to be rejected, but it has to be done by the American people at the polls. If we bar him from running, if we turn him into a political martyr, we will make him a legend. And that can damage our democracy in ways we can't even predict. And yes, allowing him to run means he could win. And that's horrifying. But at this point, what are we going to do? Can we abandon faith in our people? And by the way, if the American people reelect him anyway, I mean, what are we fighting for? So I say we have to let him run. Let him run and let's make sure we beat his giant Big Mac stuffed, grotesque, expanding, gelatinous ass. And by the way, uh, if you actually read the 14th Amendment, anyone who gave aid or comfort to the insurrection is disqualified from public office. Shouldn't this include the new Speaker of the House of Representatives? Hmm? If we're going to go after Donald Trump, let's go after Trump's little Johnson as well. We want to know what you guys think. We are at 866-997-4748. 866-997-GRIT. Let me take a very quick call before we go to break. Uh, Beth in Portland, welcome. You're on SiriusXM. Hi, Beth. Hi, John. I'm calling about this young man I worked with on a film. His name is Matt Perry, and now I'm God bless him. him. God bless yeah. him. What film did you work with him but on? God bless him. He died sober. Yeah, he did. He did. Yep. And he, and did, and he did a lot of good before he got on. there. Yes, he did. And he had such a terrible childhood. But he and my we worked on Jimmy Reardon together. And my two teenage son children came and hung out with mom on the set for a couple of days and had so much fun with Matt and River Phoenix. And now wow. they're both gone. Yeah. And um, it's hard to lose them so young. Yes, it is. It's tragic and, you know, and it's pointless. I gave them the, the book about, uh, oh, now I'm trying to remember it. Uh, Richard Bach's second book, Mm -hmm. and he read it, and he said, I'm going to keep that book. Wow. Thank you. And of course, he also said to me, because I have such wonderful, I had such wonderful kids, and we were so close, and he had such a fucked up family. Yeah. He said, I'd like to be part of your family. And I said, anytime, Matt. That's lovely. You know what, Beth, I want you to remember something as sad as this is. And I've got a lot of friends that aren't here anymore because of drugs and because of alcohol. Me too. I want you to remember that you made him happy, that you gave him kindness, and that you made his life a little bit better. And he got to work with you. I did. He was lucky because he got to know you. 
Yes, and I was lucky lucky to know him. And John, I'm hoping you and I will get to know each other. I've got a project going. <laughs> well, thank you, Beth. <laughs> I never got to know Matthew. I, I was at a couple of parties with him. I said hi to him. I never hung out with him at all. But I'm very blessed. It's very it's a great blessing for you that you got to have that experience, and a great blessing for him that he got to know you. We're going to take a quick break. We will be right back. This is SiriusXM. Hey everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele Podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real, and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on, because you know I love it when you do. Welcome back. I'm so pleased to welcome this next guest and talk about this next book. Um, This is the kind of book that you become a history fan for, and... It's another book that shows that current events aren't always current and things that happened long ago can be affecting our lives to this day. 300 years ago, the greatest enemy to Britain's slave trade was not abolitionists, but pirates. Piracy had long thwarted British imperial plans and really cut into the profits of the slave trade. But the Battle of Cape Lopez, an obscure but ferocious battle off the coast of Africa, laid the groundwork for British control of the slave trade as we came to know it and subsequently changed the course of history in ways that are still felt across America. And of course, for West Africans, the stakes were even higher. Angela C. Sutton is an assistant research professor at Vanderbilt University. She's taught sea power and history, the golden age of piracy and comparative slavery. She's the director of Builders and Defenders, a database of the enslaved and free black laborers and soldiers who built and defended Fort Negley, a Civil War fortification in Nashville on the UNESCO roots of enslaved peoples, as well as the Fort Negley Descendants Project, which is an oral history archive of the stories of this population's descendants. Her research is incredible, and her new book, Pirates of the Slave Trade, The Battle of Cape Lopez and the Birth of an American Institution is a fascinating, thrilling and deeply disturbing history of the waning years of piracy and how it ushered in a newer, crueler era of slavery, chattel slavery, the model of slavery that took root in America and surpassed all others in terms of brutality and dehumanization. It's a great pleasure to welcome Professor Angela Sutton to Sirius XM. Hello. Hi. Oh, thank you so much. This is a wonderful introduction. I'm really well, excited to be here. It, it, it's a wonderful history. And, and my dad was a history teacher. I've grown up learning so much about the history of the slave trade and the slave importing industry, the slave breeding industry. I, I really didn't know much about how piracy impacted that and how directly the impact was. Most of us have our opinions of piracy, as you know, from 20th century popular culture, maybe 19th century, if you want to count Gilbert and Sullivan. Um, Can I start with the obvious question, Professor? What do we mean when we say the golden age of piracy? Sure. Yeah. Um, It's generally an era that historians have kind of carved out and divided into three pieces. And it was the era really where in which piracy flourished. And there were a lot of reasons for that. Um, But toward the end of the Golden Age, um, this this turn kind of takes as capitalism is set into motion in the world. Right. So um, in the beginning, we had pirates who were 
able to act as naval forces and merchants for a lot of people in the Caribbean. Caribbean governors would sign deals with them, would welcome them onto the island, provided that they didn't attack anyone belonging to that island, right? Like, if you're Mm -hmm. in Jamaica, it's a British island, don't attack British flags, otherwise everything flies. And so for years, pirates kind of lived in this way and really got to experience a joyful and prosperous life, for the most part. Um, Toward the end of the Golden Age, that all changes because all of the European powers catch up with their naval power. They now have enough ships to defend themselves, and they don't need to rely on pirates. And so now they begin to hunt pirates down because they become a liability. So now with this this like with this like whole empire on their back, all the pirates rush to West Africa in order to run away from from what's going on in the Caribbean. And their hope is to secure a ship that is fast and strong enough to turn the corn under South Africa and go into the East Indies where all the wealth is. So most mm. of them don't even want to be in West Africa. No one wants to be in West Africa, right? Like it's it's a miserable job for almost everybody. All, all of the slave trade makes things horrific for everyone there. So nobody wants to be there. Everyone wants to go into the East Indies. But when they come to West Africa, they find most slave ships are awful, right? They use the oldest of the old because nobody cares about the living cargo, the human beings that are trapped inside. Um, and so when Black Bart, uh, he's, he's just a guy working on a slave ship, like so many other people who ran out of options and ended up working on slave ships. Uh, when he gets pirated, he's the first to jump the plank and go, yes, I'm here. I will be a pirate. He converts immediately. And he becomes the right-hand man of the man who made him, Howell Davis. They're both Welsh. They both get along really well. Um, and so near this, go- this end of the golden age, essentially pirates are scrapping in West Africa, realizing that all of their ambitions to get away are going to be met with resistance at every turn. And then they start Mm. impeding the trade out of revenge and they attack. One out of every four ships by the end of the Golden Age becomes taken by pirates in West Africa. Wow. I mean, I, I've read a bit about the the network of trade routes across the Atlantic that and, and you know, how the empire, of course, had their slave trade beginning. Um, but it really was amazing learning how the role of piracy evolved in shaping all of European imperial history, particularly the British Empire. I, I mean, it seems like it's really a, an untold part of our history. And I found the character of Black Bart fascinating. He's Bar- Bartholomew Roberts, and he was just a, a navigator, right? Like just a navigator who became a pirate king. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I really I like highlighting his story because I think that when it comes to the slave trade, people have a lot of things to say. Something that they never say is that almost everybody who worked in the trade um, bar the people who owned the ships, bar the people who insured the ships, bar the bankers and the slave trading company officials who were making all the money, everybody else was coerced into it. Nobody wanted to be there, and Black Bart certainly didn't want to be there either. And I think that the point here is that the Atlantic world set into motion a system that took away choices from people, summarily removed choices from them in order to coerce them into things they didn't want to do. And that was sort of where you see this happening en masse with populations that are wildly out of control. And you see that happening in the slave trade. You see that happening later on in the Caribbean as well. Um, and you see it happening now. Like this is, you know, it, it sort of proliferates from there. It's true. How fearsome were these pirates? How, how, how violent and, and brutal were they? You know, it really depends on who you're talking about. Uh, there was one guy who was just the worst of the worst, and you can't make this up. His name was Captain Crackers, um, and he lived in a place called White Man's Bay. You can't make it up. This is this is real. Um, this guy was horrific, right? He was a heinous murderer. He would snatch people from the coast and enslave them. He had pens full of enslaved people that he would abuse systematically, and he enjoyed going after resistance fighters who came from Central Africa trying to protect their people from slave raids. And he would enjoy going after them and making them 
them into examples. So he was the worst of the worst. On the other end of the spectrum, you also have people who, you know, a poor boy at 18 years old, he ends up working in the trade, gets snatched by pirates because he knows how to set a topsail. And suddenly he's stuck with holding a cutlass, not knowing what to do with it. And those pirates were far more common than the mm. Captain Crackers types. They really are. And I, I couldn't help reading your book without thinking about the movie and who I want to see casted it, because there really are three very charismatic figures here. One, of course, is Black Bart, the most famous. Um, most of us have not heard of Shaliner Ogle. Am I saying his name right? The British naval captain. Who knows? Oh, please. Oh, we don't know how it was pronounced. Well, well, this guy seems very fascinating because he was really sort of a, a status seeking guy who was charged with ending the piracy and they more or less sent him to take down and kill black bart mm -hmm. yeah um but he was under equipped for the job because there were pirates in the east indies that were causing a lot more problems for the british empire so the british empire sent commodore matthews with a nice big fleet honor ogle got two ships um and he had a really really big chip on his shoulder because of that because of course he'd gone to school with matthews and he thought that he was deserving of the things that matthews had but matthew's father had a higher status um, uh, and so Chalmer Ogle goes down into West Africa with his surgeon, John Atkins, who is the best diary keeper, like his diary, I really lean on it heavily. Um, and he goes to West Africa and chases Black Bart for a year and a half. He doesn't realize, of course, that Black Bart is behind him the entire time. It's the one place he never thinks to look is behind him. Um, I think the third character in the book that... Uh take shape as one of the major ones is uh, John Connie, another figure that I must admit I'd never heard of as well. He was the leader of the Akan people. Can you tell us a bit about his backstory before these three men came together? Yeah, for sure. He is absolutely the most fascinating figure in the book. And the reason why we haven't heard I much agree. about is because most of the documents about him are written in Dutch and German and a couple in Swedish as well. Um, and there's not as much written about him in English. And so there, there just hasn't been a book yet. Um, and so when I was doing my research, I really tried to focus as hard as I could on him and find every scrap of information or every any time anyone mentioned him um, so that we could really get a fuller picture. And what I learned was that he was born in the right place at the right time, or I guess you could call it the wrong place at the wrong time, because mm. he was just a small child uh, he witnessed all the elders of of his group of people, of the Ahanta, which are a subsegment of the Akon people. He witnessed them treating with the Swedes and getting screwed over in the deal. And then he witnessed the Dutch coming in and trying to do the same thing, only to lay waste his village in revenge because they have some perceived slight. And so he spent his entire life running from Europeans and understanding what they had done to his people. And then by the time the Prussians came in, he was well-versed and he could speak multiple European languages, multiple African languages. He had gone up north to live with the Fanti and learn how to fight. And so he was a military general as well as a leader by the time his people made him king. And so he knew what was what. And he was twice the age of anyone else around him because all of the Europeans that came into the slave trade generally were young and poor and uneducated. Mm -hmm. Whereas this guy was in his 50s, knew a lot, had very wide contacts and was able to run circles around everyone that he was dealing with. And is it true that he would decorate his home with the bones of Dutch soldiers and drink from skulls? I mean, <laughs> look, I think um, <laughs> it, was, it was a thing that so many Europeans said about him and it circulated and became like this legend. 
Um, right. I think that it's absolutely possible that he had a couple of skulls for show that he would pull out at strategic moments to sort of make his point. But I think that Connie was an incredibly wise man. He understood that at this time, Europeans were circulating false news about cannibalism and people doing all sorts of gruesome things to one another in order to um, make Africans out to be barbarians. And he was leaning into that in order to scare people into being his allies or at least into not screwing with his trade agreements. Well, we've all taken out a skull to impress visitors before. I, I think I can't judge him for that. So uh, this is really a story about capitalism in so many ways. Uh, the most yeah. brutal form of capitalism and how its uh, most corrosive effects are still affecting our culture. And mm -hmm. yet it is centered around this rather obscure battle from 1722, where, mm -hmm. I, a spoiler alert, I guess we're not really spoiling the story. Um, Black Bart met his fate at the hands of uh, yeah. Captain Ogle, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Black Bart and over 200 of his friends, right? They all go down. Um, and when, and once Chandler Ogle is able to secure all of them and bring them back to Cape Coast for a trial, and I use that term super loosely, there's a whole chapter in the book about it, there's no trial. Um, Chandler Ogle is the judge, jury, executioner, right? Um, and so most of the pirates get killed, except for the ones who are Black. All the Black pirates get sold into slavery without even being allowed to tell their story, because according to Chandler Ogle, Black people, of course, are not human beings, but objects and objects right. cannot give testimony. Um, and so you really begin to see here, this is like sort of the point where um, where slavery and race become intertwined and blackness is associated with enslavement permanently. Uh, and that's exactly. something that only chattel slavery brings us because under chattel slavery, of course, you are legally rendered an object and any children you would have also retain that objecthood. Before I proceed down that dark path, how, how did Black Bart actually die in the battle? Yeah, it was actually a very shameful way. Um, he, he was not aware the battle was beginning, and I think he uh, got some grape shot right through his throat as he was having his breakfast. Wow. Well, so, you know, it seems like, well, that, that seems like a, a rather unceremonial end to the story, but in, it's really just the beginning because that battle was a major turning point in the Atlantic slave trade, and it led to the kind of slavery we're talking about. Chattel slavery is an expression we hear a lot, and it's not often defined. How do you explain what chattel slavery is, and how was that different than the kind of slavery Europeans knew before? Sure, yeah, let's, let's definitely talk about chattel slavery in opposition to what was before. Uh, because in the beginning of the slave trade, the type of slavery that Europeans brought to the Atlantic world came from their frame of reference, which came from the Roman Empire, right? And under the Roman Empire, enslavement was um, a thing that happened to you, but it wasn't an identity that you took on. So people came into and out of enslavement quite regularly. And when you were enslaved, you were considered a dependent of the household, which means that you had a truncated set of human rights. But you still had human rights. That, that's the most important thing. You were still a human being. You still had the right to familial integrity, so no one could sell your children away from you. Um, you still had the right to life. You still had the right to protest grotesque treatment. Um, and all of these things were things that um, made it a slightly more humane way of stealing someone's labor, I guess you could say. Could you say that? Maybe not. Um, but under chattel slavery, that all ends. So under chattel slavery, it's the most economically efficient form of slavery and also the most heinous because all of that goes away. So suddenly someone goes from being a human being to legally being rendered an object. And with that comes everything you can imagine. I always tell my students, like, if you can... Like, what is the worst thing you can imagine would happen if you were allowed to turn a human being into an object? Imagine that, and that did happen. Um, you just like, and there's nothing that you can imagine that didn't happen under enslavement. It all did. 
And so yeah. when you have a system like the chattel system where everybody is rendered an object perpetually and like through your descendant lines in, perpet in perpetuity, uh, it creates a society in which everybody has to buy into that system in order for it to work. So everybody has to now behave as if people of African descent don't have personhood. And that completely changes your society. It changes it from being like the Roman Empire, a society with slaves, to what Ira Berlin, the historian, called a slave society, a society in which everything, all religion, all politics, all economy rests on the need for enslavement of an underclass. And we are still struggling with the effects of hundreds of years of this brutal atrocity. Mm -hmm. There's no way anyone at the time could have predicted how monumental this naval battle off the coast of West Africa would have been and the impact it would have had on the British colonies. But how did it lead to the kind of slavery that America became known for? Yeah. So um, during that last part of the golden age of piracy, as we were talking about before, um, once the pirates became nihilistic and began attacking slave ships off the coast of West Africa, pretty much brought the slave trade to a complete standstill. So for that like five year period, virtually no enslaved people were able to be transported across the Atlantic, which meant that all the settler colonists in the Atlantic world in what would become the U.S., in the Caribbean, in Latin America, they had no one to enslave. They had mm. no free labor that they could count on. And so it brought all of their economies to a standstill, that labor extraction couldn't happen. Uh, and so, of course, people were up in arms and everybody was protesting. Everyone was complaining. Everyone was trying to think of a way out of this. After the Battle of Cape Lopez, you know, the, during the Battle of Cape Lopez, basically Black Bart had collected every single pirate um, into one confederation. And when Chaloner Ogle smashed it, he pretty much got rid of the pirate threat in West Africa and the slave trade was able to rev up. And the amount of African people being pulled out of there by European enslavers just went up exponentially. It's amazing. Do you, do you think we know so little about this because most of the histories were written in, in, in Dutch and German? Is that why this has not been taught widely in America? I think that's part of it. Um, I, I think, you know, like here in the U.S., we just have this really insular view of history. And if it isn't strictly American history, it's not something that we fold into our narrative. And there's already so much that we refuse to fold into our narrative that did happen here that it's uh, it's kind of a far jump to expect someone to fold something in that didn't even happen here. I know it's wrong to ask hypotheticals of historians, but I'm going to do that anyway. Um, <laughs> what do you think might have happened if this battle had ended differently? If Black Bart had survived and if he had sunk the British ships, how how might our society have looked different? I think I'm supposed to tell you something fascinating and meaningful and insightful. But my honest, true opinion that my publisher will be mad at me for sharing is that I don't think it would have made a difference because someone would have crushed him. It, there was too much on the line, right? There was too much on the line. The, the slave trade was going to continue to ramp up. It was going to become more brutal and it was going to expand in such a way that it would change the world forever. And I don't think that Black Bart could have stopped it. How how poetic and awful that these brutal pirates were the last bulwark against this kind of inhumanity. Yeah. What surprised you most in your research for this book? I think it was all of the depictions of um, body horror and the ways in which there's there's one more character. He's more of a minor character. I didn't want to like elevate him because I, I just hate him so much. Um, William that? Snellgrave, the slave trader. 
Um, mm. So he was a slave trader from London who traded to Virginia and to Jamaica, both British colonies at the time. And he was also an anti-abolitionist. So he was very politically savvy. He understood that the rhetoric at the time was that the slave trade was cruel and disgusting. It shouldn't happen. And he knew that if that were the case, then he and his family would become bankrupt. And so he threw everything he had into anti-abolitionist literature to show that actually in performing the slave trade, he was doing the world a favor by helping to free Africans from the horrors of Africa. And so he would go forth to try to describe these horrific stories that he like interfered in or witnessed or heard about when he was in Africa. But the more he describes, the more you realize that he's projecting, he's talking about himself and he's reading the story in such a way that it's completely obvious that he himself comes from a barbaric medieval culture that has body horror, right? Like think about those medieval torture chambers you go to every time you visit a European capital city. They have right, right. a torture museum. They all have torture museums. They sure They're do. They're of torture. Um, and they projected that onto Africans. They would say that Africans were like cannibals and would behead each other for fun and were sacrificing babies. There's very little evidence of that happening until European interference forced that kind of behavior. Um, certainly at the time that Snellgrave was around, it wasn't happening. Um, Snellgrave was the one who was writing his imagination onto Africa in order to convince everyone else that the slave trade was a necessary evil. And I think I was just surprised at like how diabolical people can be because i mean i live in this world i know people are terrible i get it but like this is like a new level of evil like just reading his stuff it just made my stomach turn honestly and i just i was hoping i could write this book without him i didn't want to read any more of his things because it was just harming me to read to read his horrific words but um without him you really can't tell the full story well, but I appreciate your point of view on that, because, you know, I was raised by a history teacher and I grew up admiring Howard Zinn. And I, I really don't have much patience for history that bends over backwards to try to be impartial in the face yeah. of moral atrocity. And and Absolutely what I appreciate not. is that you are you are creating a narrative where we can look through history through an anti-racism lens. Is that important to you in your work? Yeah, of course, because, um, you know, I, I history is one of the subjects that most people hate. And that hurts me. Like, I hate when I get to students, like freshman students who come in, right? And they're like, oh, I hate history. I can't believe it to take this survey class. And I'm just like, look, I know, I know, but I promise I'm not going to make you memorize any dates. And also, we're not going to read through the bullshit of Andrew Jackson. We're not doing that here. I'm not going to make yep. you do that. Instead, I'm going to show you things that you've never heard of. We're going to read the U.S. history from the point of view of various Native peoples. And we're going to look at how that, how that changes what we know about the country. And I think, like... With this story, so much of enslaved Africans and their descendants doesn't make it into our national narrative. And that right. means that now the history that we all know is completely impoverished. So from a purely selfish, even if you take the anti-racism away, even if you take away the political leanings, from a purely selfish point of view, it behooves white people to enrich ourselves by giving ourselves the full story. If we only get the pieces that make us feel good about ourselves, then we don't really know who we are as people. And that's just embarrassing. Boom. History is not supposed to make us feel warm and comfortable. Not if it's being taught mm -hmm. truly. Uh, Professor Angela Sutton, I, I loved your book. This is an amazing conversation. The book is Pirates of the Slave Trade, The Battle of Cape Lopez, and the Birth of an American Institution. Professor, what is the best way for our listeners to follow you and keep up with your work? 
Yeah, um, I have the same handle on all social media. It's Dr. Angela Sutton, just Dr. Angela Sutton, all one word. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Blue Sky because I'm optimistic, and I'm hoping that that will become the new Twitter. <laughs> you can also find me on TikTok. I just got started, um, and I'm trying trying my hand there. Um, and of course, on Instagram as well. I've got lots and lots of pirate material for you there. Um, or you can just go to AngelaSutton.info. Thank you. You really make history come alive and show how contemporary it all is. And I appreciate your work and I appreciate you joining us on SiriusXM. Thank you. Of course. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. We'll be right back with your calls. This is Progress. Welcome back. Yes, we begin the week with pirates. What are you going to do? We're at 866-997-4748, 866-997-GRID is our number. Nicole is on the line from Houston. Hi, Nicole. Thanks for waiting on hold. You're on progress. Hi, John. How are you doing? Rough I'm night, rough night. What's going on? What's going on? Well, I was listening to your conversation, and I listened through to Dr. Sutton, and I, and I got to be honest with you, John. I'm kind of tired of these people. Seventeen twenty two. 2022, mm-hmm. John, like it's the same yeah. group of people. Same. Yes. Preach, preach. Yes. It is the same people that sat under those trees with swinging bodies. It's the same people that were speaking yep. and yelling at, at kids outside. It's the same group of people. And we have and to call to the crazy. Yeah. But they gonna and they all think down. God's on their side. They all think God's on their side. They, they all think Jesus is on their, side. on their side. They always think there's a moral loophole for them committing atrocities. Absolutely. Always. It's just so frustrating. I'm looking at my kids. They're 9 and 14, and the descendants of these crazies are going to be causing chaos well into the days when my daughters are 40 and 50 like I am not. Like, why cannot these Yeah, but you also know there's a, there's a flip side to that. There's a flip side to that, which is it's never been harder for these racist Nazis to get away with what they want to do than it is right now. We are going to be a minority white society by the year 2045. And that's what's freaking them out so much. But they can't change the demographics. They can't change the fact that white supremacy is becoming a minority. The people who hate minorities are becoming one. And that's what's making them crazy. But it's people like your kids that are going to inherit this country. Your kids and my kids who are generations removed from this bullshit and have no time for it. None. Just none. And I look at their friend group. It is just like right now, if I walk into my teenager's room, she's talking to a kid in Africa, her Vietnamese boyfriend, and, and the South Asian <laughs> homegirl that like games with him. Like that's her friend group. <laughs> like yeah. literally. Yeah. yeah. I'm just. I'm so. I'm frustrated because you know I'm a Gen X for John. We'd have been through some shit. Yeah, um, I know. These kids gonna be all right. These kids gonna I think be they all right. Be. I'll send in love and light to everybody. Send in love and light. You look at you. Seventy six. You, you, you know what I get help from? Calls. I get hope from, no, 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 but I get hope from when I see how far our uh, lesbian and gay brothers and sisters have come in, you know, just a short generation, right? Because gay people, let's be honest, they've been an oppressed minority inside every minority. But look at what happened after the AIDS plague and how people came out and said, okay, we're done with the homophobia. We're going to start demanding rights. And they were straight allies. And look how far gay and lesbian people have come from the 1980s till now. Like like Barack Obama endorsed marriage equality during his re-election because he knew it was popular. So I have a lot of faith that even though, yeah, there's always going to be the bigots and the fake Christians and the homophobes, we are still getting better. It's way too slow, but I do have to believe we're getting better because I see too much proof of it. And I, and I totally agree, John. And I think about that too. Like you said, like when we were coming up in the 80s, our friends were dying. You know, they really yeah. were. 
Yeah. Um, it, it was it was rough. And now, you know, our, our kids, like I said, we, we, got, we did the work. We're going to leave them better. And I love you, love and light to everybody who loves Matthew Perry. He was my favorite. Oh, my God. Yeah. That was God how I got him. through so many rough nights. So to all of his really? friends and family and friends. Yes, so wait a second. You're you're, you're the black him. woman. You're the black woman who watches Friends. I got to tell everybody. Yes, I am. Oh my <laughs> goodness. Yes, I am. So I love. And hey, just definitely come to the south. There's so We're many working on her. blue dots in the we red are working on her. shit down here. I Please know, baby. I know. We're trying. Listen, we we do. I got her to play Austin ten years ago. I'm trying to get her to come back to Texas this year. I I'm working on her. But Atlanta from Houston, anywhere you guys are. Thank you, because I'm, I'm I'm pushing. Coming. I'm pushing Atlanta, and I'm pushing New Orleans, and I'm pushing uh, Austin again. So I'll, I'll drag you off to one of those shows. Thank you, Nicole. You made my night. And your kids are lucky to have a mom like you. we got to take a quick break. We'll be right back in just a few moments with Professor Corey Breschneider, who might be disagreeing with me about the 14th Amendment, and your calls, 866-997-4748. Tell me everything on Sirius XM Progress 127. Well, I got to take a break from it all. Cause the wind and the wilderness call. And I just need some peace from the storms I got to take a break from it all The Rolling Stones And I got to take a break On Sirius XM That's a track called Dreamy Skies This song would have worked on Exile on Main Street Would have fit right in but it's from the new record, Hackney Diamonds. Chris, I'm going to make you play every track off this record. It's that good. This is like the fourth or fifth song I've made you play from this album. I will always apply. It's such a good record. These guys are 80. And this is not like a Dylan or Leonard Cohen style album about reckoning with age. This is just a great Rolling Stones record. Easily the best since Tattoo You, probably the best since Some Girls. Yeah, I said it. Let's talk about another British bad boy, except he's not British. Uh, professor Corey Brechneider is a professor at Brown University in the poli sci department, but you guys know him as being one of the best writers ana- analyzing our politics in the Trump administration and Politico, the New York Times, Time Magazine. You can get his book, The Oath and the Office, a guide to the Constitution for future presidents at your favorite bookstore. Try to buy it at a bookstore, not online. Also, check out his new Penguin Liberty Series books on free speech, impeachment, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg's most notable cases. Professor Brett Schneider, it's so good to have you back. Uh, thanks, John. And I'll spare you the fake uh, British accent. <laughs> no worries. I'm I'm really persecuting Chris and making him play like every track from that album. I'm so impressed by it. Uh, Corey, I'm so glad you're here tonight. Today, of course, began the civil trial to keep Donald Trump off the ballot in the state of Colorado by arguing that his role in the insurrection is disqualifying under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. There's going to be a Minnesota case later this week. There are dozens of cases pending across the nation. 
that are relying on this rarely used 155-year-old post-Civil War era clause. And um, I'd love to talk about it with you. I have very mixed feelings about the entire endeavor, and I've been dying to talk. I I opened with a monologue about it uh, that's probably going to get me a lot of hate mail, but I'd love to know your thoughts on this and and where we stand and um, how this is taking shape to your legal mind. I mean, you know, we could talk about some of the pushback that might come, and I know that that's one serious worry, but I guess I do think it seems like the straightforward point, which is that the Constitution sets out very few requirements for what it takes to, to run for president. You have to be 35. You have to be born in the United States. I think that mm-hmm. you know is something we probably should rethink. Uh, but in addition to those, what else is there? You can't have engaged. That's the technical. That's the term of art that's used. Engaged in insurrection. And the purpose of or that rebellion. after the sorry, in rebellion, sorry. After the Civil War, the, the, the thought was that basically people who had threatened to undermine the republic shouldn't be in government. And I guess I think, you know, did he or did he not engage in, you know, something that could be, that, that is uh, rebellion against a, a kind of, uh, I mean, I, I think of it, the spirit of it is, as being about undermining Republic, and that's yeah. what this was. It was an attempted self-coup, and so I, it seems to me that based on the text, he qualifies. And yeah. there are pragmatic questions about it, but I guess I think you know we have to ask ourselves: Is this a good or a bad requirement? And it's not just a policy issue. A war was fought over this that's question, right. and after the war, three amendments were passed: the Thirteenth Amendment, ending slavery; the Fourteenth Amendment both guaranteeing equal protection, but also doing this other thing, which is protecting us against those who would who would undermine the Republic, and, and the 15th Amendment that guarantees the right to vote regardless of mm-hmm. race. So I think, you know, it's not just a good idea to not have somebody who attempted a self-coup eligible for the ballot, but that it's, it's the thing that was agreed about, up, upon after the Civil War. And, you know, honoring that decision in the same way as honoring the end of slavery and equal protection, all of that remains such a core part of our Constitution. I think this is this is what what we came up with as a nation. And uh, I also think it makes sense because in a lot of countries, you know, there are all sorts of restrictions on the kind of people who can run for office. Uh, Nazi yeah. Party, for instance, is banned and Germany, hate speech is banned, and people who um, have a history of supporting it can be limited in, in their civic rights. So I think, you know, this is a, a sort of minimalist thing on principle. Now, you know, you have to balance out democracy with the protection of democracy. And I think, I guess my bottom line is that this is the way the balance was struck. And, and yeah, I think he's he's ineligible. And I'd love to see um, New Hampshire and um, uh, in this case, Colorado, uh, these these states where where the challenge is being brought, I, I'd like to see uh, him face the consequences. And, you know, ideally, it would have been done. The impeachment process this isn't well known. Exactly, there's a majority vote in the uh, House and two thirds in the Senate, followed by a vote to disqualify. That never happened, and that was unfortunate. Right. But this is another failsafe, same as same as impeachment. So that, that's my bottom line. 
Yeah. I mean, his one of the arguments his attorneys are making is that the clause, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, never actually says uh, president. It talks about senators, talks about, you know, electors, but it doesn't actually bring up the president. That's kind of rubbish because it, it does, you know, that that's what his lawyers are defending in court today. But it does specifically say anyone who's taken an oath of office as an officer of the United States. I think that covers the presidency, Professor, doesn't it? Yeah, I think this sort of parsing uh, the sort of language, you know, to to say that um, he's not somehow covered is is ridiculous. I mean, there's nothing in the text that convinces me of that. The term officer often applies to presidents. It it is an office. (laughs) That's the way it's commonly described. And then I think, too, come back to the intent, not just the text, and the intent is to keep um, you know, those those who really threaten the republic from taking office. And where is the threat most obvious? It's in the presidency. So I think if it applies anywhere, it would apply in the place where we're most vulnerable to yeah. uh, to an insurrection. I look, by the way, it is insurrection or rebellion. So, so it's got yes, both. It's, both. it's either or. Um, you know, I, I'm, I, I began the show today, Corey, struggling in a monologue over this because I think, yeah, yeah they got him dead to rights. Yeah. Well, he's disqualified. I mean, it's it's right there in yeah. paper. He's disqualified. Yeah. He did yeah. it. I mean, what he yeah. did in Georgia, what he did here, you know, they yeah. got him. I mean, it's it's yeah. not up for debate to me. I just yeah. feel that it, it and, and this is what the 14th Amendment was written for. But yeah. but I think it's very dangerous. I think it leads to escalation. I think that for every one of us who yeah. thinks this is standing up for the Constitution, there's going to be some deluded MAGA mouth breathers drooling on the clicker mm-hmm. watching Fox who are going to think this is a bunch of elites doing election interference because, you know, they 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 don't want to let us vote for the candidate we want to vote for. And my right. fear has been if we are going to defend democracy so hard that we take it away from people we disagree with, I don't think that they're going to be, shall we say, in a mood to listen to reason about this. <laughs> um, and again, what do you say about the folks? And again, their arguments are all stupid. I just worry about their violence. But. The Trumpers are saying, well, if he's disqualified, no, Colorado, how is that not a coup? I realize they don't know what words mean, but how do you respond to that? Yeah, I think we've got to, you know, we've got to handle that reality. And as you say, that that is the argument on the other side. Glad glad to see that we're in agreement on this. I wasn't sure based on what you were saying in the beginning. I think that, you know, look, these people, the the extreme MAGA wing, (laughs) threaten democracy in several different ways. They don't like the rules yeah. of democracy. That's their point. So the Electoral College, say he loses, they're going to, of course, again claim, and he's going to claim that he won. And so yeah. even in the most straightforward democratic procedures, they're not going to like the rules. And this is, a, you know, not a rule of procedure in the, in the narrow sense of the Electoral College or, um, or an election, but it's a different kind of rule. It's a rule about eligibility. And right. so the, I'd say the same thing. You know, these are these are the the law, the, the the set of qualifications. It's part of democracy to say that if you threatened insurrection, if you've engaged in it, uh, you're not eligible to run. And and too bad. Yeah. You know, I mean, you yeah. know, I don't think we should shed a lot of tears for someone. Threaten the republic and can't. No, I know. I I did. No, I just worry about the results because I I agree that they have every right to throw them off the ballot. And I think throwing them off the ballot is a really bad idea. I don't know if we're the ones trying to preserve democracy. And I don't know if we do it by denying it to Americans we disagree with. But to me, Corey, a, a big question for me is 
Does Donald Trump have to be convicted or at least charged with insurrection to be disqualified yeah, under now, Section now we're 3? Yeah, back into the legal questions. I guess I think that the Constitution gives different groups, different that's what I mean. the role of interpretation at different times. So if you want to put somebody in jail, that's obviously the courts. And there's a set of standards that apply to insurrection as a crime. Beyond a reasonable doubt is one, because we're putting somebody in jail, after all, or prison. Uh, in the case of being on the ballot, I think if we have more than a 50% <laughs> feeling, sense, reason, to think that the that the candidate engaged in insurrection, then that's enough. So that doesn't. That's enough for us. That's enough it. for us. Yeah, and that, that's for the citizens, I think, to decide. Um, and and you know, I think that 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 you know, and, and well, in this, I mean, it's a, it's a complicated thing. I think, first of all, state legislatures could take it upon themselves. I think as courts decide, they're going to not use a reasonable doubt standard. And then ultimately, it's also going to be the Secretary of State of these of these places that are yeah. going to have a say, and they're going to, I think, look to both for guidance. So I think one thing I haven't seen is, in addition to these cases, I would love to see state legislatures start to take a stand on whether or not he did or didn't commit insurrection. I'd love to see Colorado, New Hampshire, I would too. Uh, pass resolutions and say, you know, he's ineligible, and that that would help direct the Secretary of State, so they're not stuck, you know, as they were before, trying to trying to. Uh, make these decisions for themselves. It seems like that would be a way around this, no doubt. But I, I fear that the courts may decide that since he hasn't been convicted or charged with insurrection, then his fitness to serve should be decided by the citizens when they vote because uh, yeah. he's not been convicted of anything. So I, I kind of feel like this is going to go to the Supreme Court no matter what. Yeah, I think that that's a realistic way uh, to see see the outcome here is that the um, you know the lower courts might find that he's ineligible, but this is about the U.S. Constitution, so the Supreme Court will certainly have final review. And I think they're you know not for reasons of originalism or reasons of the Constitution in any sense. They're just you know the brute, gross politics that we've seen for them. They, they might they might go for the person who uh, who appointed them? In the case of Kavanaugh, exactly. he just doesn't seem that principled a person. I will say though, one thing that's fascinating about this whole development is, uh, it's actually uh, a colleague of mine who I, we talked together for a semester, and I know him quite well. Will Bode came up with this. <laughs> He's by no means a liberal or a progressive. He is definitely a conservative and an originalist. And the way he argues is exactly along the lines that this court claims to argue. The original meaning of the Constitution, the text as it was originally understood at the time it was ratified. And in this case, we're talking about the ratification of the 14th Amendment. So that's their bread and butter. And, uh, uh, you know, that minimum will make them squirm because it really is an argument right in their wheelhouse. Yeah. I mean, Corey, the other thing that scares me is obviously this will cement his martyr status among the Red Hats out there and making him a martyr. Uh, will lead to all kinds of very scary results. But also, I'm, I'm afraid that in states with that Trump won, we might see secretaries of state who like Trump respond to this by disqualifying any Democratic candidates they feel should be thrown off the rolls. I mean, you know, I guess I'd say there there's legal reason to disqualify him is that he engaged in insurrection. And, you know, courts would have to find that. That's going to be part of the inquiry. There's the fact a question of fact of whether he did this or not, and that has to be proven in court. 
what the argument is for that, you know, Joe Biden engaged in insurrection, I, I just don't see it. So, um, no, but you know, I, I, I just meant see, something. I just mean something else that's specious. Like there's yeah. they'll throw any Democrat off the ro- off the ballot for any reason they come up with because they feel they're allowed to yeah. because they're loyal to Trump. Yeah, it's a good point. And it shouldn't. I think that just emphasizes, again, why we can't let the secretaries of state be the ones making the decisions on their own. It's got to be guided by either courts, you know, which is how what we're discussing now or, or by these state legislatures, letting them letting them, you know, go on their own, I think, is, is a real problem. But, you know, I, I think too. imagine that he had been uh, impeached and convicted and disqualified. We would have heard all sorts of cackles about undermining democracy there, too. And yet, sure. that's yeah, the core part of, of democracy, too. And, and I guess that's what I'd say about this. This is part of the democratic process that if you've been found legally or by some institution with authority to, to decide these things, uh, to have engaged in insurrection, you know, you're out. <laughs> It yeah. seems like an OK rule to me, I got to say. I, it's an OK rule to me. But like, again, this is why I'm so unpopular, because I think, yeah, he's disqualified. I won't argue it uh, that he, he's not. Right. But I still think I think yeah. he needs to be allowed to run anyway. And he has to be beaten decisively at the polls and be a loser because anything else could lead yeah. to great destruction. Professor, I, see the, I, I see the risk. I mean, I guess I just throw this back, John, which is, please. you know, I'm struggling with this, too. And I don't think it's an easy case. But I guess I'd say, what's the risk on the other side? If he wins, and he could win, let's be honest about it. Yeah. Uh, at this stage, he's going to get the nomination. And, you know, we just don't know what's going to happen once we head to a general election. I just really think that the risk is so high that literally the republic ends and collapses into a dictatorship. We'll fight him and, and do everything that we can. But it, it's just such a high risk on the other side that we're balancing the risks here. And I guess I think... You know, the law is on our side. The principles are on our side in saying that he should be disqualified. And on balance, I think, uh, you know, let's let's hmm. let's not take the risk that 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 he's in office and does this again. It's not just I that know. he'll win and do bad policies, that he, he will again commit a kind of insurrection against against the republic. I know. I just worry about if, if, you know, it's perceived as being dirty dealings that knocks him out of the, uh, the, the race itself. I don't even want to think about what the violent repercussions could be. But I, I do want to ask you, since we're talking about insurrectionist douchebags, <laughs> wh- why aren't we talking about the new Speaker of the House who certainly worked to overturn the election? I mean, he, he filed an amicus brief. Yeah, it's like we were so exhausted by, uh, you know, round after round that we finally got somebody and the thought was, oh, at least the House will function. That <laughs> I don't know why this is in front page news. It's like that should be the headline, insurrectionist appointed speak, Speaker of the House. And, yeah. you know, he, he didn't he, he didn't uh, bash windows or, uh, you know, attack Nancy Pelosi physically, but he certainly attacked the Constitution by coming up with this bogus amicus brief that was really arguing that uh, you don't have to follow the rules of the Electoral College, that the states could decide for themselves. It was a crucial part of the plan coup. One, you know, kind of most obvious visible part was the attack on the Capitol. But the more important, I think, part of the, the scheme was to send these fake electors from the states have Mike Pence refuse to, you know, recognize the real electors, and and you know, then that would throw things to the House of Representatives, which was going to vote state by state, and they had the votes there. Yeah. Now, crucial to that was the Speaker of the House, who, yeah. who 
came up with this bogus theory about how, yeah, those slates of electors, these bogus slates are, are perfectly valid. And, uh, you know, he's a constitutional lawyer and made this live an argument very similar to the argument that John Eastman is being indicted for. And uh, mm-hmm. yet, you know, here we are. This, this guy is going to run uh, one of the most crucial institutions in, in, in the United States. <laughs> oh, it's going to be a great time for comedy. I don't know if it's going to be a very good time for democracy or justice. <laughs> no. uh, Professor, while I have you on the line here, <laughs> uh, well, federal judge Chutkin has denied Trump's motion to stay and has reinstated her limited gag order on him. It took about an hour and a half for him to violate that gag order and start attacking witnesses and, and the judge herself. I, I, we've discussed, I don't know who's going to be the judge to revoke this guy's bail and put him in jail, but it seems like... Yeah. Aside from the civics lesson we're all getting in gag orders this month, Donald Trump seems to have got a pretty decent uh, racket going for him right now. Um, Any time a judge finds him $10,000 for violating a gag order, Trump raises 10 times that in fundraising off the outrage of the gag order violation that night. It really seems like a judge can't sanction him without helping him have a big financial windfall of fundraising. Yeah. And, you know, I think here we're, we're actually in the same dilemma that we've been talking about at length in regard to the disqualification that you have a rule of law. It says that, you know, the judge tells you can't threaten people or, or violate the basic rules of justice that you're going to be sanctioned. And yet using the sanctions, you know, fines are one thing, but really the question ultimately is going to be if he keeps going with this and you know, say he, he directly threatens the lives, for instance, of right. jurors or of, of the judge, um, then, you know, he has to be imprisoned. And yet the worry is that that's going to, you know, rile up the his supporters, that they're going to be violent. And, you know, I yeah. guess we're in the same dilemma. And there I'd say at some point we just have to do it. We just have I to mean, accept that, yes, he is going to do that. There is going to be a risk. We have mechanisms for dealing with with insurrection, with violence, and uh, yet you have to enforce the rule of law. And so I, I think I'd say the same thing about what we were saying when we were talking about his his qualification for office, that, that we, yeah. you know, it's a terrible dilemma, but we just have to follow the principles. And let me let me law. close out by let me close out by quoting him on his website, Filth Social. After the judge Jutkin put her gag order, he he posted I have just learned that the very biased Trump-hating judge in D.C. who should have recused herself due to her blatant and open loathing of your favorite president, me, that's in caps, has reimposed a gag order which will put me at a disadvantage against my prosecutorial and political opponents. It's illegal, takes away my first member right of free. Like, right away, he's trash-talking her immediately after the gag order. I really think... He's trying to spend a night in jail, either because he he wants to make new friends or because he wants to make a lot of money. I, I mean, he did this right away, right away, Professor. How how can she not send him to jail for a night? Yeah, I'd say it's fundraising. I also think there's something more pernicious about him. You know, he has a taste for violence. You saw that on January 6th in the most dramatic way, but you've seen it before that in his mm-hmm. campaign rallies when he was really urging people to attack the protesters. All of that, you know, gives him a thrill, which is uh, the thrill of political violence. And uh, oh. what could be more dangerous? I, I think that's that goes <laughs> to, to, I guess, come back to the biggest point. That's why he is such a threat that we should take extraordinary means to, to keep him from ever You're taking right. that office again. 
Professor Corey Brettschneider, you are the smartest player in the game. What is the best way for our listeners to follow you and keep track of all your doings? You could follow me at CoreyBrettschneider.com. You could also order an advanced copy of The Presidents and the People, uh, my next book about threats to democracy. Brilliant. Corey, thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us late tonight as well. A really, really a pleasure. I, I know we had you on pretty late this That's evening. That's my bedtime. So, I know. So I'm very grateful. I really wanted to discuss this with you. We'll see you back next week at your usual time. Thank you. Sounds good. Thanks, John. 